Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Malachi chapter 3, we're going to look at Malachi 3, verse 6 through 12. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand and read the God's word this morning. If you read the word of God, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not, uh, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Well, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray once again and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word deals with so much of the the, the rubber meets the road kind of things in our lives, that, uh, the Christian faith uh, that you teach us of uh, in your scriptures is not some pie in the sky thing that does not relate to everyday life. Thank you for this, even your word. And we ask once again that you work in us what's pleasing in your sight by your Holy Spirit within us, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. We pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds according to your word by the work of your spirit. For it's Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a number of weeks since we're in the book of Malachi, so I thought it might be good to uh, have a little bit of a catching us up to speed was the ground that we've covered a little bit. And we have seen so far in the book of Malachi in these first three chapters that both priest and people alike in Israel had been under for some time the chastisement of God. And this is, again, uh, we call Malachi one of the post-exilic prophets. In other words, this is he's ministering to the people of God after they came back from the Babylonian uh, exile. And despite God's great mercies and kindnesses toward them in bringing them back from that long exile in a pagan land, and also in providing for them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem in pretty short order, despite all that, their hearts, as we can see from their conduct that Malachi brings up here, their hearts were still very far from him. And this is evidence, as we've seen even so far in the book, in some of the many sins that they had been continuing to commit, uh, in, uh, in not, not only in the way they approached the worship in the temple. Remember, he says in the first chapter, that they were offering uh, blind, lame, and sick animals as sacrifices, contrary to God's explicit prohibition and commandment. That's in the first 14 verses or so of the, of the book, in chapter 1. He mentions in chapter uh, 2 the failure of the priests of God in, in that they, they did not faithfully teach the law of God to the people, so that many in, in Israel were caused to stumble at the law is literally what it says, or stumble by their instruction. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 tells us about that. And then lastly, we looked at this number of weeks ago 
uh, one of the major ways that they had sinned against God uh, was in the fact that they were committing what God calls in chapter 2, verse 11, an abomination before God and profaning his covenant. What, and what was it that they were doing that God was so offended by? They were divorcing, the, the Hebrew men there, were divorcing the wives of their youth and marrying what he calls the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, they were they were divorcing their believing wives and marrying heathens who worshipped false gods and idols. And so what did God do because of all this? Over time, you know, God uh, is slow to anger, but God began to chastise them. And one of his chastisements was that he withheld his hand of blessing from them, from the nation. And yet it seemed to them that the pagan Gentile nations around them were somehow prospering while they themselves who worshipped the one true living God were instead suffering affliction and want. And so they complained that God was being unfair. They complained that God was being unjust. And they said, chapter 2, verse 17, God says this is what they were saying. Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? That was their complaint about their situation. And we saw back then when we looked at that text that what they were doing essentially was accusing God of having changed. They're in their hearts they were saying, God used to be just back when he blessed us, right? If God's blessing us, he's okay. He's being fair and he's the God of justice. But because God wasn't blessing them, they said God must have somehow changed and changed for the worse. If you can imagine accusing God of such a thing. After all, he wasn't blessing them the way they thought they deserved to be blessed. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, we read that very familiar passage uh, where God tells them that nothing could be further from the truth. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are what? Are not consumed. So not only had God not changed, but it was only due to the fact that God had not changed uh, that they had not been consumed or destroyed already from the face of the earth because of their sin and unfaithfulness to him. In fact, verse 7 in our text, God tells them that the real problem at the root of all this was not that he had changed, but that they had not changed. He wasn't in need of change, but they were. In fact, it's been this way for quite a long time. They stubbornly refused to change in the form of repentance. Look at verse 7 there. He says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, there's that refrain you see seven times in the book of Malachi, but you say, it's a terrible thing to say. God says one thing through his prophet. And the people, instead of saying amen, they say, oh, no, no, au contraire. You know, but you say something different. So since the days of their fathers, they had, he says, turned aside from God's law, from his statutes, and had not kept them. And even the exile in Babylon was not enough of a wake-up call for them to turn around in repentance. And now that the providential signs of God's fatherly displeasure upon the nation were becoming so evident all around them in the national life of Israel, they were still unwilling to repent. You know, it's, it's as if, you know, God in his mercy and kindness and his 
his uh, long suffering with his people, he is, he's not he's slow to anger. He starts to chastise in hopes that they would repent. Starts ratcheting it up a little bit more, and they still repent. And what do you see in the book of Malachi is rather than repenting, they blamed God. They said, God, you're the problem, not us. We're we're showing up to church, so to speak. We're doing the Christian, you know, in their in their context. We're going to temple. We're offering sacrifices. Where's the blessing? You're not doing your job. Is sort of what they were were saying, you know. But what we find in our text is the Lord graciously calls them to return to Him in humble repentance, and He says He promises there if they would just do that, He would return to them. As if God needs to repent, He doesn't. But He says He would return to them. And I think what he's saying there is he returned to them in blessing. He would make his face to shine upon them once again. Even after all these years, I mean, how many generations is he talking about when he says your fathers? Even after all these years, he still offered mercy and forgiveness and restoration if they would just repent and turn back to him. That's how good God is. You know, we, we aren't good like that. Now, you offend some of us one too many times, that's it. God, God is long-suffering with us, thank goodness, thank God. God is good, he does not change. And thankfully, God is still a God who forgives and receives all those who repent and believe in Christ for salvation. But instead of repenting and returning to God at this gracious invitation, their hearts remained hardened against God. Their response was not humility and repentance, but recalcitrance and self-righteousness and self Justification, they answered back to God in verse 7. You can imagine saying such a thing. How shall we return? In other words, in what way should we return to you, God? You know, it, it's, it's kind of stunning when you read some of the Psalms. You know, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, appended at least two great Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And God, you know, David says to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in your everlasting way. You know better than I do how sinful I am. None of us have half a clue how sinful we are and the tendencies we have, uh, the things that we do and say and think. Uh, But the wicked, they justify themselves even before God. They say, in what shall we return? In what ways do we possibly have to reform and repent? And so here in our text in verses 8 through 12, God tells them very clearly how they were to return and in what ways, for example, they had gone astray. And in in verse 8, he sums it up as robbing God. That is is what he says. Look at verse 8 again. It says, will a man rob God? When they say, how shall we return? He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Even, even then, they still fight back. They still, they still answer back to God. But you say, how have we robbed you? And then God says, in your tithes and contributions or your tithes and offerings. So God tells his people that they were robbing him. That is what, in this particular case, they needed to repent of in turning back to God. Now, the, the Hebrew word there, you know, when I say the word rob, what do you, what do you think of? You think of Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, blown up trains, you know, somebody going into a bank with a gun, stick them up, that kind of a thing. We think of armed robbery, we think of a violent uh, interaction, and that's not a bad way of of, uh, translating it, but the idea really is is more of cheating or defrauding. Nobody nobody goes to God and says, stick them up, you know. 
but they were defrauding God. Of all people, they could cheat and defraud. They were defrauding God of something that rightly belonged to God. It wasn't theirs to begin with. That's half the problem, is they looked at it as if it was theirs rather than God's to, to begin with. And so it's not as if they were stealing from God at gunpoint, as you might imagine the picture to be, but simply of keeping back something from God that was rightfully his. What they were withholding from God did not belong to them, regardless of what they thought. You know, we just sang a hymn earlier in the service some time ago, and we sing it once in a while. What's the title? We give thee but thine own. God doesn't need from us. God cannot be a debtor, you know, to us. Everything we have comes from, every breath we take comes from God. It's all his. It doesn't belong to us in the beginning, in the first place. And how were they robbing God, he says, in your tithes and contributions? Now, the word tithe, in case you don't know, uh, it literally means a tenth. It is not a technical term in, in so many words. It just means a tenth, literally a ten, ten percent. You know, our kids are learning some math, and I think Eliza's learning fractions. A tenth, a tithe is a tenth, one tenth. So if you have a dollar, it's ten cents, right? We wish our, our government would be so kind as to only, only ask and demand for a tenth of, of what we make. But uh, it means a tenth, and in this case it had to do in their circumstance with their herds and flocks, the harvest of their crops, the fruits of their vines, and so forth. Now the tithe, the word tithe is spoken of in many places in your Old Testament. If you were to go, you know, we have it easy. We can just look on our computer and Google something or put a word search in, in the online Bible, uh, and that's what I did. I didn't look at my paper concordance, although I had one. But the word tithe or tithes or the word tenth appears dozens of times. Dozens of times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 14:20, before the law was even given through Moses, we are told that after the rescue of Lot from those pagan kings, Melchizedek, a member of Melchizedek, the king of, of Salem, Abram gave Melchizedek, it says, a tenth, a tithe, of all the spoils. He, he tithed to, to Melchizedek, who was a priest of God. And in fact, later on in the book of Hebrews, it quotes that and refers to it and says that, in a sense, Levi tithed through Abraham to Melchizedek, acknowledging that Melchizedek's priesthood was greater. And Jesus Christ is, is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's showing how Christ's priesthood predated the Levitical priesthood and was greater than that priesthood. Now, what was, and in many ways still is, the purpose of tithes. Why did God establish the tithe? Why, why did God do that? After all, we just said that God doesn't need anything, and God needs nothing. So why the tithe? It was given for a couple reasons, at least. It was given for the relief of the poor, and it was given for the provision or maintenance of the Levites who served in the temple. Numbers 18.21 says this. It says, to the Levites... I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Remember the, the tribes, when they went to the promised land, they were all given an allotment of land. Who didn't get one? Who didn't get any land in the promised land? The Levites. What was their inheritance? Technically, when you, when you read the story, God was their inheritance. But how did they put bread on the table. 
This is how they put bread on the table. This is how they were fed. This is how they had their, their needs met. Again, in verse 24, it says, For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I, the Lord, have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And remember, what that means is, not only did they did not have land, what did the people do with that land? They farmed, they raised crops, they raised vines for, for wine and things, they raised animals and herds and flocks and sheep. Levites didn't have any of that. It's like they didn't have a bank account. They didn't have any kind of way of making a living. And so they made their living this way. God is tied for that purpose. Now, this was to support those who at the time God had set apart for the ministry of the things of the Lord. Has that principle changed or been done away with in Scripture? Is there a passage anywhere in God's Word that says, okay, we're all done with that now. This isn't how things are done. Um, I know many people, well, many well-meaning pastors and theologians who would say, this is no longer in effect. But there, I can't find a single verse in the New Testament that gives the slightest hint that that's the case. In fact, I've found other things that would say just the opposite of that. That principle has not been changed. It has not been set aside or abrogated. And, and one of the things we see in the New Testament is that those who serve in the ministry today, pastors, teachers, missionaries, others, are still to be supported by what is given by the members of the church. That same principle still holds. That's as true today as it was in Malachi's day, and it's still one of the primary reasons for tithing in the church today. We give to God what is rightfully his, and that in his uh, wisdom it is used to maintain the ministry of the gospel, or that's what it should be used for. Now, I'm not going to nuance this to death this morning, so I'll apologize ahead of time for not doing that. And this is kind of one of those things where it can make us uncomfortable. I'll just say, if the shoe fits, wear it. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't be offended. You know, that's just the way it is. But look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. We looked at this a number of months ago. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And he gives the reason from the Old Testament. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox. There's a nice image for your pastor. Uh, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Uh, and then he says, the laborer, also an Old Testament uh, quote, the laborer deserves or is worthy of his wages. So this morning when we look at this kind of a text, as uncomfortable as it may be, we need to ask ourselves, are you robbing God? Are you defrauding God of that which is rightly his? Is this an area in which you personally need to return to the Lord? Well, the second thing, first thing is he says, God tells them they were robbing God. The second thing is God gives them uh, briefly, thankfully, uh, a glimpse of what the consequences were for this robbing of God. The second thing he does is tell us of the consequences of robbing God that they were going through. Now, in Malachi's day, this robbing of God was widespread among the people. This wasn't a here and there thing. You know, it wasn't an outlier. It was it was very widespread. And there were consequences to the land, to the people, for this disobedience in this matter. Look at verse 9. It says, God says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. And then he adds, the whole nation of you. This wasn't just a few people here and there, a few pockets of people that weren't tithing. He's saying here, it's widespread. In other words, it's been flipped on its head. 
the majority, it seems to be, were not giving their tithe faithfully. And the minority were the ones who were actually trying to be faithful in that. Um, the scriptures often speak, you might know, of blessings and curses, and in general, kind of juxtaposes the two things. Uh, and in very many ways, in general, God blesses faithfulness and obedience, however imperfect our obedience is, among his people. And likewise, he often visits, he often visits curses or chastisements upon his people for unfaithfulness and iniquity. In fact, you know, if you if you were to take the time, maybe some of you are doing a through the Bible reading thing for the year, which I commend you to do that. When you read through the prophets, you will see that message repeated over and over and over again. It's 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 hard to miss it if you're reading the scripture on a on a regular basis when you read through the prophets. He speaks very often of blessings and cursings and things like that. Now we have to be clear this this idea of blessings and curses uh, sometimes can be overstated by some of the health, wealth, and prosperity so-called gospel preachers. But the idea of God blessing faithfulness and obedience on the one hand and chastising sin among his people is just as true in the New Testament as it ever was. God does not what? Change. The administration of how things are done might change, but God in general God does not change, and his ways with his people in general do not change either. In Acts chapter 5, for example, you might remember this as a sobering example of Ananias and Sapphira, who were struck dead by God, and what was their sin? It wasn't far off of this, although they weren't giving a tithe. Remember, the apostles, they didn't command anybody, hey, sell your property, and you know they weren't socialists. They didn't command that you sell your property. They didn't command that everybody gives up owning anything to support the poor, but where some people did was, like Barnabas, sold property and laid the, the, the proceeds, the money from it, at the apostles' feet. Do, do whatever God wants you to do with it. Feed the poor, help those who are uh, underprivileged whatnot. At the time, they were having a famine in Jerusalem. What did Ananias and Sapphira do? They saw the, the approval, the esteem that someone like Bar- Barnabas had for what he did, and they said, oh, I'm going to get him some of this action too. So they sold, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it's not what they said. Right? This is the, uh, the living Bible on steroids. Right? Uh, paraphrase, uh, more than a paraphrase. They said, hey, that's a good deal. I'm, I got a piece of property, we'll sell it, and we'll give part of it. It'll be a big check. You know, We'll give part of it, but we'll keep back a bunch for ourselves too. Well, what's the problem? Who saw it? Did Peter know what they did on his own? No. But God saw it. And so one one by one, one first Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, God struck them dead. And what did Peter say? You've not lied to men. You can lie to me. I'm just a guy. I'm a puzzle, but I'm just a guy. But you lied to God. And he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So even in that passage, we're getting hints of the Trinity, right? But he says, you've lied to God, and God saw it. And what happened? He dropped it. Then she comes in. And he asked, did, did you give this land for such and such a price? And she kept the lie going. Maybe she didn't know he had died. You, you think if she knew he died, she might have been like, you got me. you know. Uh, but she dropped dead too. God struck her dead. And what were they doing? They were, it wasn't about the tithe. That was not a tithe. But they were seeking to defraud God. Same, In essence, the same kind of sin. As if they could deceive God. First Corinthians chapter 11 verses 28 
to 32, the Apostle Paul tells us of a very severe chastisement from the Lord that some of the church had gone through for the way they had been abusing the Lord's Supper. Church sounds dangerous in the New Testament. Right? You're giving the offering, careful. <laughs> we should be offering after the service, right? Uh, no. Um, but even the Lord's Supper, this is what Paul says. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He's not trying to scare people away. His goal is that you partake, right? But he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have what? Died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined or chastised so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It doesn't mean that those who died were somehow consigned to hell. He's saying sometimes God chastises that he might not condemn the world of unbelievers. He says many among the church in Corinth were ill. They got sick. And some had even died because of the way they abused the Lord's Supper. That should shock us. But in some ways, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where we should be very careful about what we do. We don't get to make it up as we go. And the Lord's Supper is one of those things that, that we as pastors and elders and, and people in the church, we shouldn't be monkeying with things that we didn't start to begin with. We should make every effort we can to do things according to God's word and not try to innovate and be wiser than God, even in those things. But what was the curse that the people in Malachi's day were experiencing due to their unfaithfulness? I think the picture becomes clear when you kind of take verses 10 and 11 and flip it over, kind of flip it over on its head. Kind of, I think I said before, kind of reverse engineer it. The blessings God promises if they repent kind of show us what the curses were that they had been going through. Look at verses 10 and 11. God says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So, you know, kind of reverse engineer, what does it sound like was happening? In Malachi's day, apparently the windows of heaven had been not open, but closed. And the Lord had withheld the rain from the land. And so what happened? Their crops languished. Not only that, but the devourer. Now, he doesn't tell us what that devourer was. It might have been locusts. It might have been blight. It might have been something else. But the devourer was destroying the crops that did grow. So there was not enough rain for the crops. The crops barely grew. On top of that, there was something, the devourer. Uh, might have been Lucas, that destroyed the little crops they did have that grew. And then he says the fruits of their soil uh, were, were being destroyed and their vines, we think, were, fa- were failing to bear. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty bleak picture. That's a pretty dire situation. Now, God previously had warned the people about just such things as that, just such curses as that, before they entered the promised land to begin with. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 23 and 24, remember this is right towards the end of Deuteronomy, right before Moses died and the people were led by Joshua into the promised land. 
Deuteronomy 28, 23, and 24 says this, and this is one of the one of the threatenings of curses for disobedience. And the heavens over your head shall be as bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. You've probably heard that phrase before. Maybe you've used the phrase, and sometimes when you're praying, it feels like God's not answering. It feels like the heavens are brass. That's where that, where that phrase comes from. The heavens shall be like bronze, and the earth shall be like iron. In other words, nothing's going to grow. Instead of rain, dust is going to be coming from, from the sky, so to speak. Now, in, in Malachi's day, it seems as if the heavens had become bronze, and not enough rain was falling to sustain their crops and their livestock. The earth had become as iron so that it did not produce crops the way it had done before. You know, we aren't in the same circumstance. You know, we aren't in the same kind of economy, an agrarian economy, that kind of thing. But I think if you want to put this in modern terms, their economy had crashed. We have no idea what that's like, right? Nobody, nothing like that ever happens these days. Their economy had crashed. Poverty was rampant. You know, if you think about it, it's not that hard for us to identify with these things in some ways. Um, and, you know, God does not change. God still does the same kinds of things today. Sometimes God withholds rain. You know, we live in Southern California. We know better than many how important and crucial rain is. When we don't get rain, everybody's wells dry up. That still happens today. Sometimes he withholds rain. Sometimes God, really many times, God chastises a people by sending them wicked rulers. He did it throughout the Old Testament in many ways, and he does it throughout history. Sometimes those wicked rulers act as the devourer, as if they were a plague of locusts upon the land. All, all devourers are not created equally. And so, you know, we, we heard a lot about during this election and years ago uh, in the 80s about making America great again, and I hope that that is something that you would like to see uh, and pray for. But if, if that's your prayer, if that's your desire, uh, if our greatest need for that to happen is revival and repentance. Nothing wrong with seeking to be uh, active politically. I know some people have a tendency to poo-poo that and to downplay it and say it's you know, not fitting for a Christian to do. I would never say that. Uh, be active politically. All you, you can do within reason, seek the good of your nation and the good of your neighbor by seeking to elect God-fearing people to office, local, state, and national public office. That's a commendable thing, and it's wise. But without repentance and revival, it won't accomplish a thing. Without real, genuine repentance, it will all be just on the surface, and we, we can't imagine that God's blessing would be upon it. None of that will do any good, lasting and real good, without revival and repentance and a turning back to God in sincerity and truth. I don't know about you, but the more I read and study the book of Malachi, and really the more I read the minor prophets in general, uh, the more contemporary and relevant it seems to be. When I first started studying to go through the book of Malachi for the sermon, the sermon series, it, it felt very distant. You know, it's like, it's hard to imagine. We're not the same circumstance. We're, you know, we're not Israel. We're just the church, all these things. Uh, so many, you know, thousands of years ago and what, 2,500 years almost ago at this point. But the more I read it, the more we see these things and think about them and think through them, the more relevant this book seems to be. I think the message of the book of Malachi in many ways is as needful and pressing for the church in our day as it has ever been. 
the more things change, the more they what stay the same. I think so many ways. We we really haven't changed that much, people in general. Well, thankfully, God doesn't stop there. God doesn't stop by just pronouncing the curses that they were undergoing for their unfaithfulness and sin. But in his mercy and kindness, what does he do? He actually spends a lot more time than that encouraging them to repentance and faithfulness through the promise of great blessing. So he, he, he tells them what their sin was at this particular time. They were robbing God. He tells them what the consequences were that they knew full well they were undergoing because of their sin, not because God had changed. And then he gives them the promise of blessing uh, for repentance in this matter. It's, it's, uh, he encourages them to repentance and faithfulness, and he promises them great blessing if they do. So look at verses 10 through 12. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby, here's something God doesn't say very often, put me to the test. Try me, right? Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You know, I just noticed it as I was reading it. Three times in those three verses, what does God call himself? The Lord of hosts. What, what does that mean? Maybe you've read that phrase in the Bible a million times. And, okay, it's just a name for God. It's a military term. Like, it's kind of a military term. It's like the God, I think there's a Chris Tomlin song called The God of Angel Armies or something. It's, it's that kind of term. It's the God with an army of angels. You know, that's the picture. You might think of an earthly nation and, and your, the enemies of your earthly nation being powerful and a great army. Here he's saying, no, the God of armies, the God of the heavenly host, the God... The Lord of hosts, Yahweh. That's, that's who he's, that's the name he's going by here. It's a, it's significant of the power and the majesty of God. God can do anything. And this is, that's the name he chooses to use in this particular context. The Lord of hosts is able to do all these things. Now, God didn't, God didn't have to promise any such blessing, did he? God could have said, here's the curses you're undergoing. Do what I tell you to do. The end. Exclamation point. And nothing could be gainsayed about that. We would have no, nothing wrong to say about that in any way. God would be just if that's what he did. If God said, you know, stop this, start doing this, that's it. He would have been just in doing that. He doesn't have to bless anything. No, no one deserves God's blessing. Your acts and my acts of obedience, as imperfect as they are, are seeking to follow after God's will. Does God owe us blessing for that? No. But in God's mercy and kindness towards us as his children, he often promises great blessing because he knows how weak we are as his children. And he does, he delights to bless us by his kindness and grace. Just as serious as the curse was that they were undergoing and they were experiencing at the moment, Look at how much more, I know it's in terms of just a few verses, but look how much more time God spends in the, in the, in the form of how long the passage is. In talking about the blessings than he did talking about the curse, he spends much more time trying to encourage them by promising these blessings. He tells them to put him to the test or try him or prove them. 
And how were they to do that? What act of faith and obedience did God tell them to do? He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. It tells you what was going on. The people were giving offerings. They weren't just not giving. They weren't bringing the full tithe. And I'll say this, and you have probably found this by experience. It takes faith. It takes faith, trust in God and his faithful provision to tithe. It takes faith. It took faith for the Old Testament saints to give God the first fruits of their harvest. The first fruits wasn't the full harvest. It was the sign of what was to come. But you had to trust the rest was going to come. And God said, give me the first fruits. It's much the same thing as tithing. It's the same way with obeying the Sabbath commandment. You know, it takes faith. It takes faith to trust that God is going to provide for all of our needs, even if we work one less day a week than we would otherwise. You can see it's easy for us to say, I'm going to, I'm going to fall short. I am going to lack. I'm going to need. I can't take this day and dedicate it to the Lord in worship. And remember, that was the lesson of the manna. That was the lesson of the manna in the wilderness, was to trust God. And he did it differently, approaching the Sabbath. They were not to go out and gather on the Sabbath. And did they ever suffer want because of it? No. God provided all that they needed. When you and I are suffering want or lack, the temptation is to hold back and not give our full time. And yet that often results in nothing but more lack, doesn't it? Christian generosity never makes sense to a worldly heart. It's just the way that it is. God's math, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. We talk about the new math. Well, God's math, God's arithmetic, God's accounting is not the same uh, as ours. We sometimes think if we faithfully give to the church and to those in need, that we are just going to become ourselves in need. And yet what does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 21? He says, where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. And tithing is a heart check as well as a faith check. Proverbs 11, 24 to 25 says this. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the, and, and the one who waters will himself be watered. So do you want to see the windows of heaven open, as, as he says here, and God's blessing poured out in such a way that there's no more need? That's what God is talking about here. And think about this, the same phrase about the windows of heaven being opened, maybe that rang a bell as we were reading it. It's almost word for word the same phrase used in Genesis chapter 7 about the flood of Noah's day. The windows of heaven were open. Think, think about, is that an accident that Malachi, by God's inspiration, uses that phrase to talk about God's blessing? He uses the same mental picture of a worldwide flood that, that was over the top of the mountains and killed everybody but Noah and his family to, to, to be a comparison or an image, an analogy of the blessing he was going to pour out. He was going to open the windows of heaven and pour down uh, that kind of a blessing. Now, this is not a name it, claim it, prosperity gospel kind of teaching. Many, many of them, I'm sure, have probably used this text and others to teach their, their heresy. Um, is, is Malachi teaching a prosperity gospel? Is he saying, hey, brothers and sisters, if you just give your check to the church, that you're going to become rich? Does the Bible teach that? I hope you don't believe that. No, the Bible does not teach that in any way. Well, we are, we are not promised riches in this life. What did Jesus say? Foxes have holes 
and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. He did not own a home. He didn't own a vacation home. He didn't own a condo. He didn't own a timeshare. No, he had nothing, right? And people were like, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And he says, okay, this is where I'm going. I don't think I want to follow you there. <laughs> that, still, that still happens. We are not promised riches. What we are promised is abundant blessing from the Lord. And part of that will involve our material needs being met. Doesn't mean we're going to be rich. That's not why you give. As the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The context of that is people worrying about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, he says. Give, he says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all those things that you're worried about. God will take care of those things. All these things will be added to you. But it takes faith to do that. But isn't that the point of being a believer? You know, a, the, a believer is another word for a Christian. It takes faith. Even in these things, these rubber meets the road kind of things. If you're a believer in Christ, Seek his kingdom first in all things, including your finances. And what does God tell you to do? You know, it, it, it takes a step of faith, doesn't it? So what does God say? Put me to the test. Put God to the test if you're not already doing so. And see what God will do. May God work in us what's pleasing in his sight in all things, and even in such things as this, that we might, he might receive all the glory, and you and I might know his, his great blessing upon us by his grace. Amen.